0: Hi, Ellen. I'm Raju, everybody. As you know, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. And I'm welcoming Ellen, who uh, we're just meeting this moment, literally, in the moment. And uh, so happy to have you here, Ellen.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Ellen, uh, I became interested in Ellen's work because particularly around this new book that's coming out of hers the anatomy of anxiety understanding and overcoming the body's fear response and uh you are a a therapist a psychiatrist but you are uh shall we say the kind of doctor that I'd be going to because of the holistic aspect where and many of us who listen to this and are involved in other ways uh, on the spiritual path would say that is the way that I want to roll in dealing with any issues whatsoever. So we really appreciate that. And uh, I, so can you, how did you get here? First of all, just reading this book, by the way, I, I it it's, uh, identifies more anxieties than I probably really <laughs> would have liked to in this moment. But perfect. And as you say, throughout this book, this is what it's about, understanding and transforming, not pushing away and ignoring. So um, yeah, I think from that point of view, it's, it's, it's a very great offering, Ellen. Um, so, but where did you, here's what I usually ask people that I've never met. How did you get to the point where you knew you weren't your senses your ego the story you tell yourself you weren't your habitual patterns and neurotic tendencies what happened to help transform and give you the idea there was another reality
1: mm. let's see if i can concisely patch together a story <laughs> to make sense of what has really been a you know a long evolution but um I think usually when people ask me how did I end up being a holistic doctor they assume that I started out conventional and had an aha moment and was like oh no I've got it all wrong and let's take this approach but that wasn't really my journey I really started out super weirdo and what's <laughs> strange is that I found myself in conventional medical training and so really? it, I was always what does a that fish mean out of super water.
0: weirdo though I got to know <laughs> yeah. that
1: I mean, I think that, um, I didn't have the words to describe my outlook back then, but I was already a little witchy. I was already, um, someone who paid attention to energy, who thought holistically, who was trying to always be in the gray area and understand the complexities of the human condition. And so the, The mismatch was finding myself in a lecture hall learning about nephrology. (laughs) So I was really a fish out of water in med school and thought many times about quitting. Mm. But I had a nascent connection to my intuition back then and had a little bit of a sense that I was supposed to stay the course. And of of course, now that I have a somewhat well-developed hotline to my intuition, I'm exactly on on the path that I I was always supposed to be. And so I'm I'm right where I need to be, but it was something that felt uncertain for a while. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think that um, I am, I'm a seeker. I always have been. I've had really good friends around me who have asked the bigger questions and I'm the daughter of a librarian. And so books and literature and, and just really delving into great thinkers asking the big questions has just been the waters I've bathed in. And I feel really lucky for that. And it enriches my life to always be seeking and asking Mm. these questions.
0: Mm. Very great. Well, I would uh, just to give you an example, maybe you can give one that's, this is for me, like an extremely concrete example. Like, acid back in the day or now even psychedelics and what they how they do give you that other reality at least a a brief visit Uh, but for me it was um, this is my famous (laughs) story which I won't go into detail except that I was very young teenager managed to get into a club in Montreal and see John Coltrane uh, before he left and he played my favorite things. I went out of whatever. I didn't know what was in, but I was out of it.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's, that was a huge transformational moment for me, actually. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that's a more like concrete, okay, I had an encounter that uh, changed a lot of stuff in a moment
1: yeah I would say my first eyes wide open touch with that was actually in Bali when I was there doing my yoga teacher training. And I was around people who were just so much further down the path, and I heard them, you know there's this one woman, Daniela, and she would call herself a witch, and I was like, we we can say that. we <laughs> can I own that. And um there was a day when we were learning Sanskrit and we were chanting and meditating. And we had reached this climax as a group, you know, there were probably 40 of us and we were chanting in Sanskrit and, and then an earthquake happened and it felt so obvious that we caused this earthquake with the power of our meditation. And, and to me, that was, um, that crystallized something, but it's true that I've also found that psychedelics have really created a, a, a very beautiful path to um, exploring my relationship to something divine. And they've been a real gift in that process for me, such a gift.
0: Mm. You say something in the book about um, two different methods in relation to therapy and one of them, the traditional method, I can't remember what it is. I have it marked out somewhere. Uh, is good, but psychedelic therapy <laughs> is where it's at. Oh, you said something <laughs> like that, right?
1: Um, probably. I I think I, I sort of draw a comparison around the way psychodynamic psychotherapy talks about dreams as being the royal road to the unconscious. That's it, dreams.
0: Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, that's and
1: it. I, I and I'm I'm for that. I love yeah, to no, of yeah. interpret dreams. Um, but I, I do find that psychedelics are like the superhighway. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> they what take
0: you, you said, exactly. Right yeah. there. But of course, everybody, set and setting and following what Al- Alpert and Leary put together back then is very appropriate now. I always have to put that little, you know, fine print in there. You can't mm-hmm. just going out there and popping stuff ain't going to do it. In fact, can have, de- you know, not such great effects. Uh, but Absolutely true. We who, you know, were doing that back in the day, often, shall we say, in Ramdas's case, often you couldn't even qualify. Often wasn't good enough, though. That's for sure. Uh, he, as he said, I got to uh, the guru named Karoli Baba, who was no longer living in or not living. In subject-object thing that we were used to, so it was like, "What is this kind of a thing?" He said, "Without acid, I, I wouldn't have been able to really get the reality of the situation." And I, when I got, I remember that, and when I, I had the same feeling. So, uh, on the other hand, he himself, who got was given acid by you know that story that Ramdas gave him.
1: I don't know that story.
0: He's, I mean, again, we've told the story before, but you haven't heard it, so it's. Uh, so Ramdas gets there. This is the first time in 1967, and everywhere he went, he had a pouch full of psychedelics, right? And I saw dudes would say, "Oh yeah, I'd try that," and whatever happened. Uh, and he gets to Maharaji and said, "You got you got some medicine," and Ramdas is thinking. You know, Older man, when maybe he needs diabetes medicine, what is he? <laughs> you know the yogi medicine. He said, and then he got okay. We're talking about psychedelics, so he he brought some. Uh, he put a few in. I mean, he had white lightning. You know the Osley acid from back in the day that was way stronger than what it is right now. And he gave it to him, and he popped it. And nothing. There it was nothing happened. But when Ramdas, this is a short version of this. When he went back to America, he thought, wait a minute now. Maybe he he tossed it over his shoulder and I wasn't looking. He distracted me. How do I know? You know, he got doubt that how could someone take what ended up being, uh, you know, like thousands of micrograms. <laughs> okay, whatever. He took, a, he just threw a whole bunch of them. And then he went back and he sat down. And th- when we came back with him at one point, he um, he said to Ram Dass, you got any more of that? And Ramdas, yeah. And he took a couple, and and he went like this, putting the pills directly on the tongue and slowly swallowing it. And and then he said to Ram, Dass, "Is that the right way? Like you know, he was telling him, you know, you had a little bit of doubt here about whether I did this or not. Anyhow, at that moment, nothing happened. Of course, same thing." But he said it's good for people in the beginning. But you only get to have darshan, uh, be in the presence of Christ for a couple of hours. Then you have to leave. Ultimately, better to feed and love people is what he said. And uh, but that is, um, I mean, whenever anybody you know next gen asks me about this stuff, it, that's what I say. Follow the set and setting Ramdas and Leary recommended, and know that it is good for beginners, is what I have been told. And uh, ultimately, though, it's not something to continue the way that Ramdas did when he was with Leary and all that. Yeah, so that was that story.
1: Uh, it's a beautiful story. I love the idea of it's better to feed and love people. And I think it is a bridge. I think about. Um, There's a a quote from a friend and colleague of mine named Will Sue, and he says, psychedelics are um, not just tools for healing trauma, but medicine to make spirituality palatable for our starving Western world. And I think about how Mm, there's so many ways, there's all these different ways that we're beginners right now. And I have a lot of patients, I certainly... Feel like it played a role in my life with this, where you know, if a generation or two ago there was kind of religion forced on us, then we've seen this swing in the other direction, almost this Kanmari cleanse of religion. And we've lost that through line to community and to seeking and gathering in the name of seeking, and into finding meaning and purpose in our lives. And I think that that's a theme of a lot of my patients who struggle with anxiety, mental health in general, mm. is almost to feel like, well, the obviously the only right way to see this world is an atheistic lens of um, logic and reason and the rational. And as much as that feels correct to them, there is a coldness to that universe. And I think that... I like the way that this medicine, these medicines can sometimes just pull back the curtain ever so slightly and give us an experience that makes us scratch our heads. And, you know, whether you're ready to just completely dive in and say, oh, this reveals that always everywhere, this is divine, this experience, everything is, or whether you're just at the point where you might say to yourself, huh? Now I'm not so sure. And, and I think that that's really healthy to just even live the questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Curiosity. I find that it's a salve
1: for mental health struggles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Being curious is, is a big part of it all.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but uh, let me just read a little something from, from the book. Mm. By the way, everybody, this has a lot of great information um, about, uh, particularly about the mind-body connection related to anxiety, and and you go into it, you know, in terms of uh, gut stuff, you know, how, what we are doing to ourselves by virtue of, oh God, this just got me, because <sighs> you you you. You get after this core thing of mine, gluten. I have to have my toast, and you. And the way that where where is this? The way that you put it, by the way, is um, totally understanding. People like me's uh, completely lost in neurotic um, shit about it. Oh my God, where is it? (laughs) I it's, am you there's it, nothing i want yeah. more than pizza and a croissant. Yeah, i get it. I just want my toast though. And and I, I so everybody round up apparently, not apparently. I mean this isn't like news but it's pointed to particularly. I always knew you cannot eat bread unless it's organic. You got to start there, forget everything else, right? Yeah. That's and funny. uh and then you take it uh one step further in terms of busting me and that concept which i'm still dealing with in, in that i'm like i can't i can't so i got to think what else can i do and it's a drug i love you know that that's absolutely true is is it not
1: Is a drug. I mean, it breaks down into gluteomorphin and because of the Roundup and all the other aspects of modern life, maybe even the Roundup residue in our tap water at this point, many of us have intestinal permeability or leaky gut. So Mm -hmm. these gluteomorphin molecules are getting into our bloodstream. They're lipophilic. They cross the blood-brain barrier. They act on our opiate receptors in our brain. But I want to Push back on my own pushback for a minute. <laughs> yeah, and, please and do. And <laughs> say that um, we're all so different. Mm. And, um, you know, I, if in a vacuum, I do think that certainly conventional American wheat sprayed with Roundup is not doing anybody any favors. Some people do okay with it, some people really don't. And I think there are mitigating strategies like eating long fermented organic sourdough. And I also think that sounds like the joy and pleasure and sustenance you get from toast potentially offsets the downsides of these molecules themselves. And I think really at the end of the day, mindset, pleasure, mm-hmm. um, even just an energetic relationship to how we're nourishing ourselves and how we trust in our bodies can overpower the molecular reality. So maybe you stick to your toast, but if you're struggling, it's something to look at.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ellen. (laughs) You've saved me. I'm (laughs) trying. Oh God. Um, But let me read this little thing because it points to uh, so much of of the core of the book. So um, whether it's the consequence of our habits or a missive for our inner psyche, anxiety is not the final diagnosis but rather the beginning of our inquiry i mean this is such an important premise because it for me it's like uh don't don't be pushing shit away you've got to find a way to be friends and invite in it's um i, I have a great friend uh, uh lama tultrim alione who's just absolutely wonderful a western uh, uh lama uh who wrote a book um all about um, befriending demons, inviting them in and hanging with them and making yourself a comfort zone around it, which you talk about in a different way and absolutely the same thing though. Anxiety is not what's wrong with you. It is it is your body and mind fiercely alerting you to the fact that something else is wrong. It is evidence that there's something out of balance in your body, mind, life, or surroundings. And with curiosity and experimentation, you can work towards putting these elements back into balance. And uh, the path forward begins with identifying the root cause, whether it's a result of an everyday habit or a sense of profound unease or both. But uh, working towards putting elements back into balance is actually why Mind Rolling exists. The podcast is as much as I can share That's what I'm interested in. That's the only thing I'm interested in sharing. Um, It's about that life and balance, and how do we get there. And it's in all different ways. So you address many, uh, uh, much of what it is that I believe our audience and particularly myself is interested in.
1: Yeah, this is a really different paradigm for understanding mental health. And we've all come of age, been indoctrinated with the idea that Mental health is a genetic chemical imbalance that exists from the neck up. And we, um, we think that the solution is things like medication, maybe psychotherapy, and I'm not knocking either of those things. But what I've come to recognize in my practice is that mental health is largely physical health. The brain is an organ. It's a piece of flesh like any other organ in our body. And if something is physically out of balance, you better believe that impacts the brain. And a brain out of physical balance is manifest as mental health struggles. And so it's a nice entry point. I find that it's really the low-hanging fruit is to identify the ways that we physically get out of balance and to address those directly. And then often what we think of as an identity And even a destiny in terms of our diagnoses. You know, I am somebody with anxiety. That's my anxiety. That's the depression. We really affected these diagnoses. But it's sometimes really up for debate once somebody has addressed underlying inflammation or gotten off the birth control pill or corrected a vitamin B12 deficiency or just fixed sleep apnea. And then what you see is someone who doesn't really meet criteria for these diagnoses ever mm. again in their lives. And so it really calls That's them to amazing. question, what are the underlying factors causing what we call mental health issues?
0: Yeah. Hmm. Oh, there's a great, great quote from the book uh, from someone we love. Problems that remain persistently insoluble should always be suspected. As questions asked in the wrong way, only Alan Watts could come up with that.
1: I get goosebumps uh, every time I reflect on that quote. Yeah, I love
0: really. it so much. Yeah. We, on the uh, Be Here Now Network, Alan has a show just well, it's a show for the last year. It's up, been up a year. And that because Ram Dass and Alan Watts were good friends, actually. So, um, but then someone. Might read the book or address the book by virtue of its cover and go. Well, you know, I don't have a lot of anxiety. You know, sometimes uh, normal little things, and then <laughs> you write. Um, Once we are able to target and eliminate uh, the psychology, uh, the uh, the physiological source of our distress, which you were just mentioning, we can then more directly address the deeper anxiety. Here's our true anxiety, folks. For any of you out there going, "I'm cool," that arises from having strayed from a vital sense of purpose and meaning, which you started out the conversation at base. This anxiety is what it means to be human. That's my favorite thing in the in the whole book because it just encapsulates the reality. Uh, and and Jack Cornfield, who's a good friend and uh, has a great podcast and, and does retreats with us and so on. Constantly, the mantra is, it's okay to be human. It's okay. You know, and, and that's what, this is what it means to be human. To know the inherent vulnerability of walking this earth. That we can lose the people we love and that we too will one day die. Um, And, and Kierkegaard called it the dizziness Of freedom. I never heard that, and I'm in love with
1: that. I mean, this is such a central question. When I reflect on anxiety, when I reflect on the immense, profound vulnerability of being a human in this physical form, forming attachments and connections and love, you know, this central, most important, singular thing of what it Mm. is to exist. But it, you know, to me, it comes to this interface around clinging. And mm. I really connect to my true anxiety when I think about the ways that I cling to the people that I love. And I think that it's okay to be human. It's okay to feel that vulnerability. It's certainly appropriate to be overcome with immense grief when we lose people that we love. <laughs> and I also think that... There is space to reflect on whether perhaps something far beyond our comprehension is happening here and perhaps the loss is not so absolute as we think. And I can only ever be 70% there (laughs) at most on a good day. Um, But I think that even just staying with that line of questioning I think can really help with. Um, it gives us permission to be human and to feel that vulnerability and to feel our grief, but it also, I think, softens the experience a bit and just helps us stay. I think hewing to a deeper truth that's also um, an an easier way of 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 navigating this vulnerable life, and I think that that's. You know, I, I I was listening to one of your episodes, and I think it was Han who said, and someone was quoting him, that you know, if I'm not here, I'm still here, and we can come up with all kinds of ways of really demonstrating how true that is. And I think that that's where I really stay curious is all the ways that the loss is not absolute.
0: Mm. One of the best teachings that i quote a lot of from ramdas was as humans we can live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time and that's addressing exactly that so yes there's grief when we lose somebody did we not love that person did that person not love us and and they, we had had a, an unconditionality to it it wasn't a about a business give and take yes well then that does not go anywhere, absolutely does not. And all we need is a little bit of healthy, all we need, Um, forget that. Okay, everybody, you know, better, I would never say that (laughs) all you need, but it is good to have a little bit of respect for the mystery that we have no idea, yet through different ineffable experiences, be they psychedelics or for me a piece of music, live music or a teacher or whatever. And then in the biggest case, of course, meeting somebody who is no longer lost in duality. And then, you know, yeah, I anything could be. Absolutely anything could be. And anything based on heaven. that, trust.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I love this idea of being, existing in two different consciousness, two different planes. Mm. I mean, I have my waking life. And I hang out with my mom, who passed away now maybe almost six years ago, in my dreams. And that's where mm. we hang out. And mm. they're both equally valid, my mm. lives. And, and I, I think it's Ram Dass' words. I think I thought about this so much when I lost my mom, is a love that transcends time and space. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not contained or limited to the physical form.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Now, some of the things um, that come up that are the basic perspective, I think is really important, which, which you're giving people and what you're suggesting. Uh, you say, instead of asking, how, how can I stop feeling so anxious? The real question is, what is my anxiety telling me? What you know, the suffering is informing? Suffering is something, we, it's, it's not like you go looking for it, but it's an incredible teacher And it brings grace because the grace of actually bumping into what it is that is behind, underneath this unease. And, of course, the big one we just talked about, which is natural for everybody and is a a question everybody needs to address. What are we really talking about? How do I relate with the mystery? But, um, yeah, talking about uh, instead of fearing and fighting true, true anxiety and how you would advise people on that level?
1: Literally, we have such a relationship to comfort, climate control. We kind of think, let, let's, let's keep the room at 71 degrees and not a degree too warm <laughs> or too cold. And everything is instant gratification. You can have anything in a keystroke or in 15 minutes. And I think that um, we think of anxiety as a nuisance. We pathologize it. We want to medicate it away. We want it to go away. And I, I think that I'm, I'm on board with you know, the false anxiety, the avoidable anxiety, that anxiety that's caused by physical states of imbalance. I see no problem with eliminating that. I don't think it serves us. But the true anxiety that has nothing to do with whether or not we're eating gluten-free or decaf coffee, it's really our true north. It's a compass, an inner compass. And we don't want to medicate that away. We don't want to miss out on that message. That's here in a very loving way to nudge us back on course. And I think that this modern life gets us so off our paths, um, pulled in all these different directions that are actually out of alignment with our fundamental human needs. And the contribution I think we're here to carry out And so I think our true anxiety is here to tap on our shoulder gently in a sort of a whisper at first and telling us, you know, something here is not right. And our anxiety knows that we know it, but we do steamroll over it most days. And if we can slow down and tune in, have any practice for staying with it and staying curious about it, Our true anxiety is here to give the message about where we're out of alignment, where we're off course, and how to then use that anxiety, not as a nuisance or a state that we want to get rid of, but really as an energy that can fuel our actions to make sure that we're taking steps accordingly, course correcting and carrying out our contribution.
0: Mm. I was just thinking about I find people, including myself, um, done a lot of m- mindfulness practice over the years, so the good part about that is you really, if you can step back and you're not judging, you're not doing anything, but you can clearly see the mot- self-motivations, etc., etc. And then also see indulging, which I see a lot of people do. In other words, something comes up, a thought happens that creates this Tremendous discomfort, you know, a worry about a future thing or a worry about something that happened in the past that uh, one is, shall we say, not very uh, proud of. But it's, it, there's a trip that happens when the thought comes up, the body then reacts. And that's, you know, very much what happens with most of us all the time. Then there's the indulgence part. And I don't know you know, how you've seen this in practice or or, or not in your practice. But people, uh, Sharon Salzberg calls it piling on. You have one thought, there's one specific thing, a worry of some sort, that seems to be, oh, good, now we can really dump every piece of bullshit and pattern that we've had. We're going to dump it in there and make this thing very big the mole into a mountain. And um, I think being aware of that happening is is extraordinarily important to be able to cut that off at the path, which is, again, invite the demon in and say, yeah, that's great, you know, let's hang out for a bit, but then you got to go, you can have a cup of tea. Yeah,
1: I think that the pylon... I haven't thought about this directly, but just to reflect on it in this moment, I think it pertains to the fact that it's pent up. I think that sometimes when we do have that initial thought, something that elicits shame or some future tripping idea, um, it opens the floodgates. And then there's a lot of pent up thoughts that we keep just out of our awareness. And I think that, our, so much of modern life, I think, are, we are we're really blocked from having the release that we need on a day-to-day basis. I have a six-year-old daughter, <laughs> and it's not my favorite thing when she has a meltdown. But I also stand back and recognize that this little human is learning language and reading and social dynamics, and her exhausted brain at the end of the day just needs a release and it happens in the form of a meltdown and it's really inconvenient but it is the wisdom of her body giving her Mm -hmm. something so needed and i think of adults we're so socialized to hold it together and i think we're missing these releases i think that the the sisters nagoski emily and amelia nagoski in their book burnout really popularized the idea of completing the stress cycle Hmm. that when you see an animal go through an acute life or death stressor afterward they shake they reset their nervous system they discharge the adrenaline Hmm. i like that maya just perked up her head do we Hmm. is that what animals do (laughs) and it's um they they aren't blocked from giving their body that reset and that release Hmm but we sit through our lives and accumulate so many stressors and it doesn't feel appropriate to shake or cry or stomp or melt down. And so we just have so much pent up. And I wonder if this is part of why if you open up the door, so much floods and mm. moves in there.
0: Yeah. Although unfortunately these days many people are having tantrums of one sort or another some self-infliction is going on of course much more than before the pandemic and and also real unkindness is going on and non-caring and um so i think a lot of expression is going on in a, in a way that's uh, uh people need a, a good uh, I was thinking of sending copies of Danny Goldman's Emotional Intelligence book out to people, okay? Because mm. a lot of that is a concern, I mean, these days. So, um, and and the, uh, this is something you talk about. There's always a part of us that knows our essential truth and the essential truth of who we are as of late has become a bit of a cliche spouted so often it can sound hollow, like almost everything else <laughs> uh in 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 the, in the lexicon of uh, especially of around spirituality or consciousness, but for my purposes, I mean this is a buried instinct that when too long ignored can make itself known as mental discomfort, And that discomfort's trying to tell say something to us right. Buried instinct, you, the, uh, you say the best way to hear the whisper of your intuition is by co- becoming still and quiet. It will eventually interrupt the nagging anxieties and chatter that play through your head on repeat. This is a big subject for me that I have been investigating on different podcasts and so on, which is around intuition and really getting connected. What do you, you said, I even wrote it down. You said, you now have uh, a well-developed hotline to intuition. I love that. <laughs> That's a great thing, Ellen. I mean, great way of putting some words together. But, yeah, uh, to me, oh, so this is what I, my process has been around this, um, talking about developing trust. And the trust, first trust is, yes, there is something else going on aside from the story that we tell ourselves and the thoughts we believe in and the patterns and all of it, and we realize that, and then, okay, through whatever means, trust starts to happen. You know, And I use my story at first ma- meeting Ramdas because he was the first person who let go of everything in the first moment I met him and just it was all about what can I do for you, not who are you and what are you to me, etc., that we do on a day-to-day basis. And from there, I was led to India. I followed my intuition there that this is – I mean, I didn't have – it wasn't a mental thing. There was no choice. Absolute knowing, experiential knowing that I needed to follow him off to India and meet who he's talking about. But uh, I think this is the most important thing is for people to – uh, once they realize that there is a, a way to trust what you are talking about—the deepest part of ourselves—and once we realize that, and that we create a trust that that really does connect us with uh, the deepest part of ourselves, call it intuition, guide. You know, a Ramana, Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, said, "God, Guru, Self, One." right here. So, uh yeah, T- can talk about that? Yeah. Intuition trust.
1: It was such a learning for me because I grew up I think <laughs> intuiting that it was vulnerable and perhaps even kind of unsafe or unwise to be someone who sits in my intuition and and can, lets that guide me. I felt like I was living in a world where what was celebrated was skepticism and rationality and I wanted to be accepted. I thought of it as the boys club. I didn't want to be seen as irrational or sensitive. I, I had a sort of self-loathing misogyny about that. And so I wanted to be someone who was good at math and really rational and... Um, So I really suppressed my connection to my intuition for a long time. And I think about the Taoist concept of the yin-yang. And it's, you know, we, (laughs) it's a dynamic equilibrium between these two aspects, this masculine aspect of action and productivity and doing sun energy and the feminine aspect, the non-doing, the receptive, the rest. And I think that the problem is that our culture is obsessed with yang, and that's really all we value (laughs) and celebrate. And if you catch anyone in our culture celebrating the yin, if you look beneath the surface, what you find is that we're really only celebrating the yin in service of yang. It's, I'm going to, you know, you see, I see this in my patients. I want to start meditating so that I can be more focused at work. (laughs) I I want to get a good night's sleep so that I can do a good job uh, at my presentation tomorrow morning. And so it's really just yang and yin's clothing and um, it's exhausting. Oh, explain
0: yin yin and yang a mm, a little bit.
1: I'm not sure if I fully can do it service, but um, do it justice. But I I think of yin, the dark aspect of the yin-yang as that feminine aspect, the Mm -hmm. resting, non-doing, receptive moon energy. And yang is this masculine, rational, active, doing sun energy. And they exist in dynamic equilibrium. And just as you get into a crescendo of yang, there's still a little dot of yin in there. And then it reaches a tipping point where it begins the progression of crescendoing yin and around and so and so forth it goes And I think that when it exists in dynamic equilibrium and when we equally value both, we really thrive. I think it's the truth of nature. It's the truth of us. But we're living in imbalanced times where we celebrate the yang and we devalue the yin. And so for me, my journey to intuition was to start to value the yin and to basically discard this idea that I belong in the boys' club, that I'm right alongside them celebrating only yang and devaluing yin. And I, I had to really celebrate what was irrational or um, feminine. And, and for me, it's, it does relate to trust because once I finally dusted off that connection to intuition and practiced how to hear it, how to trust it, how to let it guide me, and steer my decisions I've learned that it really does not lead me astray and in those moments when I want to flirt with despair or conceive of this universe as a cold senseless place I come back to the fact that I have this connection to intuition and that I've experienced this golden guidance that's created nothing but more beauty and love and connection and purpose and expansiveness in my life Mm -hmm. and i have to believe that this can't be such a cold and senseless place after all if that guidance is there i'm inclined to trust the overall experience even when there's suffering even when it's challenging when things are not pretty and i think that I come back to my connection to intuition to help galvanize that feeling of trust mm-hmm. in whatever this is, whatever's happening here.
0: In the mystery. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think we, we absolutely should get a little bit more um, emphasis on, on the body-mind connection. Because you it's 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 really central to this book that you wrote. How long did this take you? This is a real and very well. I mean, you know, you have so many sources here. This must have taken a little bit to get this book done.
1: It was a, a labor of love. I yeah. did it for the most part also while being patients and really? raising my daughter and existing yeah. in a pandemic. But I had a lot of help. I had um, a collaborator who really made sure that I was keeping things organized and structured in a way that made sense mm. was critical and mm. those references I had a lot of help from my husband who was kind of my de facto oh. research assistant. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> okay, this great. is it's always a team effort you know yeah. it's, it's always so many mm. people involved with birthing this kind of baby.
0: Yeah So here's uh, okay this this got me uh, very anxious actually. Uh, We are, in the end, this is a quote from a woman named Susanna Callahan from Brain on Fire. I never heard that. That sounds like interesting. I should maybe read. We are, in the end, a sum of our parts. And when the body fails, all the virtues we hold dear go with it. Okay, that's probably, if you want to list any of my anxiety high point, that would be it right there. I read that and I went, Jesus, God, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, can we talk about that for a minute?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think your name is actually, it's different than you expect. It's Cahalan. Cahalan. It tricks the eye every time. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Susanna. Just, for her, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think that, you know, the way you bring it up now, Catches me a little bit off balance because I think of this as such a liberating and empowering view on mental health. Rather than seeing it as a chemical imbalance that's genetic, that's a destiny that can really only be treated with medication. I want to empower people to see that so much of mental health is based in the physical body and that's easier to address and it can change. And so we can keep the physical body in a state of better balance and mental health improvements follow. And I think that the anxiety you're bringing forth, which is very fair, is that sometimes, in spite of our greatest efforts, the body fails.
0: Not sometimes, it will.
1: It will. It does. We age and it's an imperfect machine. And I think that... I think maybe the message is too harsh in that respect because Mm. not all of our virtues fail as our body does. In many ways, I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately, as our bodies fail, it actually expands our capacity for empathy and Mm. we gain virtues. We gain the ability to connect with other people that are struggling.
0: Yeah. You know, you say this, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it just... Lit up the reality that was Ramdas. He had he almost died from a stroke. He lived for twenty two years or so, and be, basically became who he was pointing to when he had that the gift of gab. I mean, you know, he was incredible, and then he became the thing through that transformation, which I'm talking about. Oh God, you know. Well, I used to say to him, Ramdas, "I couldn't handle this." Forget that. There's no way. In fact, just reading your book on aging made me just filled me with anxiety. I don't know if I said that to him, but because <laughs> I'm doing everything you say in the book to shove off the reality and the beauty of aging. And he laughed. We had a good time around that. But that's what happened to him. What you're, what you just said, is exactly what his whole life transition was about becoming somebody who was it wasn't a minus it was a plus can you imagine that a stroke half paralyzed in a wheelchair for 22 years and it was that it, which is the reason for that movie Fierce Grace I don't know if you saw that but Worst. yeah so yes yeah thank you for reminding me <laughs> of what was right in front of me for a long time
1: I think that especially someone in Ramdas's position, your position, I think even my position as a psychiatrist, where I'm holding space for my patients' suffering, I sometimes feel like this universe uses me as a vessel and I go through certain things and experience losses, experience medical issues, experience sensitivities that are meant to help me apply them to other people, to to Mm -hmm. apply the learnings. And so I sometimes think, you know, when I'm going through a miscarriage, for example, that's my experience. And I think it's really important that I have that experience because I hold space for a lot of women having that experience. And, And I think that there are ways that when my body goes through something, I get learnings from it that I can, I think it's part of my unique role here is to translate that and to help people, whether it's feel less alone or have some strategies for supporting themselves. And so it actually, you know, it makes aging and mishaps and struggles not only feel less like something, like a reality I want to resist, but it even gives it a quality of purpose.
0: Yeah. Absolutely right on. And since we're kind of out of time, but uh, let's close this with probably the most, in my mind, important antidote to anxiety. And it's out of your chapter, Connection is Calming. And, and the quote from Georges Veant I'm going to say it in French because I'm, uh, the 75 years and $20 million expended on the grant study points to a straightforward five word conclusion happiness is love, full stop. Love that. But the reality is, you know, and you talk about it here. It's all about the relationships and the connectivity that we have in our lives with other people. Uh, we can see that we really are coming from one heart. Um, and just I am just like you. The deep uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama says all the time. We all want to be happy. We have more in common than we do otherwise, and so on. And the ability to get together, which has been probably why so much. Uh, mental health issues in the last couple of years since the pandemic, because of the isolation and so on, is profound. And uh, it's part of what we at the Foundation, Love Serve Remember Foundation, try to do in terms of getting people together. It's been online mostly, but now, praise God, we're going to be able to go out and have uh, retreats. Uh, Oh, here's the book, by the way, everybody. I have all these crazy things because I... Anatomy of Anxiety, and it'll be, <laughs> this is on YouTube, uh, there'll be uh, all the show notes. will describe how to be in touch with Ellen and her website, and the book is coming out next month, I believe. And um, thanks so much for being, I mean, we could do, you know, three, four, five of these around this uh, book has so much great material. Ellen, thank you.
1: Thank you so much, and I just want to reinforce, community really is, if there's one salve to anxiety, it's connection. And the pandemic hasn't made that any easier, but yeah. we have to prioritize it and get back.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so.
1: Thank you and for having this me.
0: Is, yeah, thank you for being here. Everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to com, And... I won't list the incredible array of wonderful podcasters, teachers, thought leaders that is up there, including Alan Watts, by the way. And uh, uh, thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, Al.